Hello and welcome to Smalltalk Reflections, a weekly podcast for discussing and promoting the Smalltalk programming language. This is episode Image-Based Development. My name is David Buck, and with me today is Craig Latta. Hi, Craig. Hey there, David. How are you doing? Very well. How are you? Not too bad. We're actually getting these podcasts out. That's amazing. Nice. Yeah, we've got a pipeline going. <laughs> got a pipeline going. Today, we're going to talk about image-based development, which is a bit of a different style of development than most people are used to. I think we should start with defining what image-based development is. Image-based development harkens back to Smalltalk's history as a complete operating system for a computer. It's really a model of the RAM of an idealized computer, which we call a virtual machine. Since its earliest days, Smalltalk has had both a virtual machine and a virtual memory, the memory on which that machine operates. So uh, image-based development then is working in an image of um, a virtual machine. So you're actually working with all the objects that are in memory. It just so happens that you can take those uh, objects and save them out to a file on disk and load that back in later. And that, that file is what we call an image. Yeah, sometimes we call it a snapshot or an object memory. Right. Now, the neat thing about that is that while you've loaded that into your memory, all of those objects are available to you. And so that includes the whole development environment. That includes all of your tools. Everything is just stuff in your environment, which is a very different sort of flow than you get with uh, languages like Java or C Sharp. Yeah, in those languages, you're concerned structurally with files. And to make the magic happen, you have to take all these files, make sure you have all the right versions of all those files, and run them through a bunch of tools that spit out code that actually gets run. When you have a virtual machine, virtual memory uh, model like this one, everything is integrated together and you can make the system run all the time. If you actually have a system implemented in itself, like Smalltalk, you get this level of integration which uh, makes you very productive. Mm -hmm. It's sort of like uh, the difference between playing in a uh, large play structure with all the toys around you and playing from a distance with a robot in the play structure that you're operating by remote control. Yeah, exactly. You get a level of continuity, which not only makes you more productive, but as you were saying before, lets you pick up where you left off very easily because you don't have to cobble together your working state. It's already there for you in the snapshots. Image-based development might seem like a strange concept, but people these days are generally already familiar with the concept, especially since laptops have been able to sleep. When you put your laptop to sleep, it's making a snapshot of its RAM that you start up later when you resume the machine. Also, systems like uh, VMware take this concept further and you know come right out and say they have a virtual machine and you have these snapshots that you can work with. And you can run multiple virtual machines at the same time instead of having to reboot into a different operating system. So let's take a little comparison between what Smalltalk does and languages similar to Java or C Sharp. Because um, uh, I've heard people say recently that uh, there's really not that much difference, but in my mind there really is, and there are there are pros and cons. I will admit. So, um, in Smalltalk, when you go to bring in code, you're bringing code into your environment. You're not bringing it into your development environment. 
or just your development environment. It's actually the environment that you're working in. So uh, when you're bringing in code, it's um, not just a matter of editing it. It's actually loading it right into your system and it becomes active right away. Yeah. And that's a big difference between Smalltalk and Java. With Java, if you load up a, um, a module to edit, all you're doing is editing it. You can't actually run anything in it until you build uh, your executable and run it. Right. I think in Windows, they, um, one form of that is called Hibernate. You go into Hibernate mode and it saves your machine status off to a file on disk. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so that's something people are already familiar with. With programming languages like uh, Java, you tend to have two different modes that you're in. One is the mode of editing your code and making changes to it. And then once you've finished with that, then you switch to a different mode where you go through a compile phase and create an executable. And then you run the executable and try and debug the executable. And those, those are two different modes of development with Smalltalk. Those are all one. Those are all in the same mode, so to speak. Right. And you don't have the cognitive load of switching back and forth between those two. And the other advantage is that each of those models is available in the same environment. So, for instance, if I'm working in my debugger trying to figure out uh, how something works, um, I can actually type in text, type in code, and have it executed right away in that environment. So I can be uh, looking at some object and I can say, what, what happens if I send you this message? I will send you, um, I send you a closed message. What does that do to you? And then look at it. That's a very novel concept, especially with C Sharp these days. They have this concept of um, edit and continue. They're trying to get further towards what Smalltalk already has. But edit and continue allows you to make changes to your code and still continue from where you left off. The problem with that is that it's very limited still. You can't make changes to the structure of a class. Uh, you can't make changes to interfaces. You can't. There are certain kinds of changes you can't make. In Smalltalk, it turns out that you can make changes to anything in the system uh, at any time. So I can, for instance, say, um, here's a class. I'm going to add some extra state to it, some extra instance variables. And suddenly every object in the system of that class changes into that new shape. Yeah, Smalltalk is very good at that. One of its basic primitives is to support object mutation, taking a whole bunch of objects and mutating them into a new form. Yeah, it, it, it's called become colon. And this operation is very fast, and that's very important because it allows you to have this interactive, exploratory style of programming. And it also makes Smalltalk a very good choice for implementing an object database. You have to do this sort of operation all the time when you're working with a large amount of common data. It makes the system a lot more attractive for databases than a relational system where you know things like joins and tables are not fast at all. Your programming style is warped to avoid doing that. Whereas with Smalltalk, you just feel free to make changes to your schemas or your, your object models as necessary. In fact, um, I work with an object database, one uh, popular one known as Gemstone. And uh, in Gemstone, um, you can actually have multiple shapes of your class and decide when and how objects will migrate from one to the other. So I can have one version of my class that has three instance variables and a newer version that has four. And on a per object basis, I can say, I want you to migrate to the new version, please. And it will migrate. Nice. 
No, as a matter of policy in our system, we just say whenever we put in a new a software release, we will automatically upgrade everything to the new versions. But that's not mandatory, and uh, many shops do it differently. Yeah. So um, Smalltalk has this uh, nice little feeling of everything is available all at once, which is uh, a big advantage in many ways. There's a disadvantage to it as well when it comes to packaging. Because with packaging, you now have to remove things that you don't want. Well, this uh, all depends on what is provided to you when you started. And if a module system is actually there, uh, implemented in Smalltalk with all the other development tools you have, then this process can be simpler and more straightforward. But most Smalltalk implementations um, weren't too concerned with that uh, at the beginning because they were just trying to get a system that you could write an app in that worked. And also, programming was often geared toward single individuals and not toward teams. So this has turned out to be one of those issues whose importance wasn't realized uh, at the very beginning. And it's only later that people started realizing, oh, yeah, we should have collaboration tools for teams. Yes. Uh, and in fact, when uh, Smalltalk first was uh, used commercially, uh, it was very difficult stripping an image down. You had to take the whole development image and try to remove things that weren't important or weren't to be delivered and have them removed from the system. And hopefully you're left with a system that's consistent. Uh, these days, as you say, we tend to use a more build-up approach uh, where you take something as small as possible and you just bring in the things that are needed to run that application and that's all. So you don't bring in a lot of extra tools or a lot of extra stuff. And uh, I believe with your work in Spoon, you're taking that even further. You're starting with an even smaller image to build up from. Yeah, it's really the absolute smallest image that could possibly run at all. Uh, and you're adding things to it. And this ties into the concept of unit tests. The way you decide what needs to be brought in can be linked directly to the unit tests that you have that you run to make sure that your app actually works, that you haven't broken it. So, uh, in fact, with Syncom, for example, uh, one tool that they use for packaging is called Runtime Packager. And in Runtime Packager, there's a mode that says, I think I know what methods I need to keep and which methods I can throw away, but I'll let you go into a special mode where you can run all your tests, and uh, I will monitor which methods are actually being called. And, hey, if you're calling something that I thought was to be removed, then I will, I'll actually add it back in and keep it. Yeah. But in general, yeah, no one should ever have to strip an image. I think that's just a symptom of a system that wasn't properly modularized and did not provide proper collaboration tools at the beginning. And in fact, Smalltalk is moving more and more in that direction. So I think that's a good direction to be moving in. So more with image-based development, um, the fact that we can save an image is rather interesting. It means that if you're doing some work and uh, maybe what you're doing is a little bit speculative, uh, maybe you don't want to keep it, maybe you do, you can save your image before you start and then start doing some extra work. And if you like it, then save your image again. Uh, if not, then you can go back to your old image. Some people have even set up uh, systems where snapshots are taken automatically and saved away in an archive so that you can go back to a particular point in time if you want very easily. And we see things like this developing over time as well in other commercial systems like Apple's Time Machine has behavior similar to this. And also some of the individual apps uh, in macOS, for example, 
make checkpoint versions of documents that you have uh, so you can go back to different points in time uh, just within that app and not using uh, time machines user interface at all. It makes it easy to do exploratory work because you're not afraid that you're going to lose the state that you're in. You can always go back to the previous state and continue from there. Yeah, exactly. And uh, the image these days uh, tends to tie in with version control tools automatically so that uh, it's easy to publish things into your library and uh, get things back out. When you feel free to explore and make different versions of things like that, So it's also nice having tools that will be able to look around your environment. Uh, we've talked before about inspectors and uh, debuggers. Um, I'll say something about debuggers is that many people think that uh, debuggers are a cop-out, that you don't need a debugger, you're wasting time if you're using a debugger. Yeah, I never understood that. Yeah, they seem to think that if you have proper tests, then that will serve the purpose of debuggers so that um, if you're running your test constantly and then some, uh, suddenly something breaks, then it's because you did something and uh, you know at what stage your test passed and at what stage your tests fail and you can go back and figure out what the difference is and fix it. But in my mind, the debugger isn't just a tool for finding bugs. It's a tool for exploring how the environment works. So we don't, we don't just use the tool for finding bugs. We use the debugger for uh, looking around at the runtime uh, system, maybe stopping at some point and looking around and seeing where we are, what objects are available, what state things are in at this point, and learning how the system works. Uh, on a large project, you can't be expected to know all of the code. So we use the debugger as one of our tools to figure out what's going on especially in areas of code that we're not very familiar with. Yeah, I couldn't do without it. In fact, I would say I write at least half of my code in the debugger. <laughs> I know where an app should start, you know, some of the main messages of the API, what they should be. So I'll put very simplistic first versions of them in there that don't do much. In fact, all they might do is just open up a debugger so I can keep writing from there. And that's a weird concept to many people is writing code in the debugger. This is something small talkers do fairly often. Um, stop the code at some point, and you, at that point you can look around and say, hey, there are these variables that are set up with the information that I want, so this is the perfect way, the perfect place to actually start changing code. And you can actually um, change methods in the debugger and continue running and stepping through. It's a mode of programming that uh, I've seen for years. I, I think Wilf Lalonde once called it needs-based programming. You you program what you need to move forward, and the debugger was the key tool for doing that. Yeah, it's, um, it's very integrated in with your environment. Um, the fact that you can, um, you can see what's going on as you're writing the code is very powerful. Uh, now, to, to be honest, I don't spend most of my time in the debugger. I usually spend a lot of time in browsers, and I don't tend to code a lot in the debugger, although I will. That's just my style. It does allow you to get a better vision of what the code is, does, and how it works, and why it works than you could ever get just by looking statically at the code. Yeah, and of course, the debugger is a browser, and all browsers are inspectors. And with um, 
inspectors, you can look at objects as they are right now. And as you're making changes to them, the objects change. So uh, it's it's a very dynamic type of environment. Yeah. And when you resume a process in the debugger from some uh, context, you might be doing that on a different host platform than when you started debugging, um, thanks to image-based development, since you can resume an image on another host machine. For example, I might start debugging something on a Windows machine, then make a, an object memory snapshot and suspend the system because I have to you know, do something else for a while. And I might uh, resume debugging again on a Mac OS or a Linux machine later. That's a very weird concept, and it does happen. Um, I've seen people who have um, runtime systems that when, when the runtime fails, it will actually save a snapshot in a mode so that when you bring that snapshot back up in a development environment, it brings up the debugger and you can debug the environment as it appeared in the runtime when it crashed. Yeah, exactly. This is a very popular thing to do to take a problem that happened in a data center, for example, or in the cloud somewhere, maybe on EC2, and make a snapshot that you can take to your local laptop or whatever to actually look at it more closely yourself. And that gives you many more tools and many more abilities to figure out what happened. Uh, oftentimes with just a stack trace, it's very difficult to figure out how you got into this mode. If you can look at it with a debugger, you can see the whole stack of calls and the whole, like not only the calls, but the variables that were available at the time, the global variables that were available, everything about the environment is visible to you. So it's easier to figure it out. Right. And since everything seems to be so connected these days, you can even make the computing environment that your laptop is in, for example, resemble a data center uh, to a great degree. Yeah. In fact, it's possible to move uh, an image that was running on, let's say, a Windows box. Uh, take that same image, even with debuggers running, save it, and then move it onto a Linux or a Mac box, bring it up, and then continue debugging from there. Uh, it's, uh, it's not something we do commonly, but it's something that you can do. Yeah, and it's a great way to share your work, a work in progress, for example, you know, just between you and your friends on different laptops. One other use of uh, images that uh, that I've seen used a lot is uh, as a simplification for the building process. So basically, um, you get these projects that involve various layers of code. So you might have some uh, sort of a base uh, framework layer followed by maybe a GUI framework on top of that and then the application code on top of that. What people will sometimes do is... Um, start from a fresh, clean image, and then load in the base layer, which doesn't change very often, and create another image that they can use as a baseline. Then load in the next layer up and create a second image they can use as a baseline. And then finally create the, um, the image for the application, which they then distribute to all the developers, and the developers can use that image and do work. Now, if they make changes to the application, then you have to build only from the uh, the previous layer up. If you make changes to the framework at the bottom, then you have to build everything from the bottom up. It could simplify your building by allowing you to snapshot at various levels, and chances are the lower levels aren't going to change as frequently as the upper levels. So that's what a, a friend of mine calls the, the layer cake of development. They have lower layers and they have higher layers, and most of the work happens in the higher layers, so 
to build those. They just start from the top of the lower layer and build up from that. Cool. Yeah. Actually, I'll tell a little story about uh, image-based development from um, the early days of Smalltalk. Back uh, when Smalltalk was developed in the 1970s at Xerox, they always had an initial image building process that would always create an image from scratch. Mm -hmm. And then um, every subsequent image, well, they had to go change that process a little bit or change the code a little bit to add more things into that base image. And that tool for building the starting image was getting more and more difficult to maintain. So finally, at one point, they said, look, we're confident enough with the system that we think we can continue developing this system indefinitely, and we don't need to go back to building an image from scratch, from absolute zero. So what we're going to do is do a snapshot, save our image, and say that is the image that we will use as the basis for all further development. And we'll throw away our tools to build that base image. And like everything that will come after this will be derived from that initial image. Uh, that initial image went through to become ultimately Smalltalk 80, ultimately became uh, Squeak and Faro, and ultimately became VisualWorks. And those are all just mutations and migrations of that initial image. And at no time in between did they ever have the ability to go back and rebuild a whole new image from scratch. And this was called throwing away the disk packs. You can look in all of those images and find specific objects that date back to those first times. It reminds me of uh, visual works. There are objects to have um, icons for thumbs up and thumbs down, which was an old user interface style that as you hover over an OK button, the cursor would change to a thumbs up. And if you hover over a cancel button, the cursor would change to a thumbs down. And those, those icons, those images are still in Smalltalk. They are still available. Yeah. So while the early Smalltalk systems weren't so great at organizing all your versions of everything, they were very good at keeping those objects around. So uh, on the whole, it's been pretty good for software forensics and figuring out the history of the system. Yeah. And that makes it a, makes an interesting point that with Smalltalk, you always have to start from an image. You can't just say, I will take source code and then do something and magically I will get an image out of it. You, you don't do that. You always start with an image and load additional things into it. But you have to start with some sort of image to begin with. Now that we sort of understand what has to be there to do anything useful in an image, we can make minimal images that don't impose too much on us that we wouldn't want anyway. So that's not much of a problem. But yeah, it's a, an interesting thing to think about. You always start from some image that someone has constructed. I'll tell a quick little story. Back in the late 1980s, I managed to get the um, source code for a Smalltalk virtual machine from uh, Carleton University and uh, the Smalltalk 80 image along with it. And at the time, I had an Amiga computer and I thought, I'm going to get this running on the Amiga. And I got the image, or I got the VM all converted, but ran into one problem, which is that the image used a floating point format called IEEE. And my format on the Amiga, the native format, was one called Fast Floating Point FFP. Uh, and they were incompatible. They were a different structure. Now, it's, it's possible to convert from one to the other, but the conversion was a little bit slow. So 
in order to get the image running on my Amiga, I, um, I started off with an automatic conversion. And so every time it needed to do floating point arithmetic, it would do a conversion of the float on the fly from IEEE to FFP, produce a result, do the operation, and then convert it back in order to put it into an object in Smalltalk, which was really slow. So then what I did is I wrote this extra little magical primitive uh, and hooked it into a special key on the keyboard. So when I pressed that key, it would basically pause the image, run through the whole image, and convert all of the IEEE floats in the image into FFP floats, and then also flip a bit in my interpreter that says, stop doing the conversion, now start using it as direct FFP, and then go. And then I was able to just hit that key and suddenly, boom, everything started using FFP floats. And then I could save my image and then take the code out of my VM to do the automatic conversion. So that was pretty pretty weird. Yeah, you were hardcore. Oh, that was hardcore. That was back in the days when I had to look at the um, the main loop of the uh, Smalltalk 80 um, interpreter and try to eliminate cycles. Uh, oh, look, this instruction takes three cycles. I can use that one that takes two cycles instead. Well, I had taken the uh, source code from C, compiled it into assembly, and I was hand-optimizing the assembly. And what was really weird was that the loop was so tight that even taking out maybe five or six cycles provided a measurable percentage improvement in the performance of the system. Oh, wow. So um, I was very, uh, very motivated to remove as many cycles from that loop as I possibly could. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. So anyways, but that's uh, that's part of uh, what you have to do with living with uh, or working with an image-based system is that if your image doesn't quite match what you need it to match and you need it to, or if you need to do some mass migration, you can do that. You can tell your image to pause for a moment, do the migration, and then keep going. And now you have a new thing that you can save as an image. So it's just uh, you know, one of the ways you get around. Um, a small talk is actually not the only environment to have an image like this. It was popular in Lisp as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lisp had the same sort of feeling of working right in the, uh, well, working in the development environment itself. And I believe APL uh, also had this feeling of um, having a live system that you're interacting with. Right. So there are other systems that do this. And these days it's becoming more popular on uh, on other languages to sort of save a snapshot of the program that's the running program and load that back in later. That's mostly done by virtual machines these days. Yeah. And some small talks have very good tools for analyzing these uh, object memories uh, without running them. Squeak, for example, has a virtual machine that's implemented in Smalltalk. And as a Smalltalk app can actually run uh, object memories, and there are great tools for running the virtual machine to some point and then stopping it, like you were saying, and then uh, inspecting all sorts of things about the object memory from a different object memory, the one that's running the Smalltalk virtual machine app. Yeah. In fact, there was a project that I worked on where I needed to take uh, an old image that was already packaged as an executable and bring it into an environment where I could analyze it. I was able to use a tool that loaded the image into memory as objects and then look around at those objects and uh, make changes and see what was there. Yeah, so this is another example of 
being able to make a whole bunch of changes to an object memory uh, while time is stopped effectively. Uh, and so you can do all sorts of things that might be tricky to do if you had to do them as a, a sequence of messages being sent, well, you know, like your floating point uh, example. There are all sorts of other things that I've had to do to make uh, minimal images while the virtual machine time is stopped. In Syncom's VisualWorks, uh, you can take a 32-bit image and transform it into a 64-bit image. Now, that involves many transformations. So, so for instance, uh, in 32 bits, a floating point number or a double precision floating point number is stored as a separate object. In a 64-bit image, they can fit it right into the uh, pointer and fiddle a few bits and get you what's called a small double. And so that's a very different kind of, uh, of way of representing floats. But you, you can take a program that will read a 32-bit image and know how to do the conversions to write out a 64-bit image that you can then run with a 64-bit VM. Right. And there are all sorts of other tools that are useful for analysis. Uh, for example, with visualization, uh, in Spoon, I wrote tools that uh, let you run a virtual machine to a certain point and then uh, make a visualization of the state of object memory at that point. Hmm. That run a bit longer, make another frame, and then build up a whole movie this way that you can watch later. I'd like to see that. Maybe you could post a video of it sometime. Sure. And there are other tools for being able to look at entire... That brings up an interesting uh, aspect of Smalltalk, is that you can actually ask for all of the objects in a system. Um, I can um, actually ask Smalltalk to loop through all of the objects and uh, do something on each of the objects. So I can uh, figure out how many objects of each class there are, and uh, I can determine how big objects are and get some sort of uh, interesting metrics on my environment. Yeah, this is great for measuring performance and finding bottlenecks, things that can be improved. Yeah, asking questions like, why do I have five million doubles when I think I should only have a few hundred thousand? Yeah. So, yeah, there are some uh, interesting aspects to that. Um, one negative consequence of uh, image-based development that I'll bring up is that um, every once in a while when you're using uh, Smalltalk in an image, uh, something strange will happen in your image. You'll execute something that you didn't think you executed or maybe you executed it wrong. And it might change something in your environment. Now, if, it, if it's a catastrophic change, it'll crash immediately. But sometimes the change is um, subtle, and it's hard to know that that change happened. So uh, you may end up saving your image, and then later finding, geez, some, this, is, this is working really weird. And um, that there's something in your image that is not doing what it's supposed to do, and you can't e easily figure it out. So... Um, because of this, I usually recommend to people that on a fairly frequent basis, they start from a clean image and just load in all their code again so that uh, the image is clean and you don't get funny little stray processes that might have been started in error and not stopped or things like this. Yeah, that's a good practice. I think it's also a good practice to be able to go back to snapshots from different points in time in the past. Yes. Uh, and to be able to keep those around, you need to have the ability to save an image. Um, and clearly one uh, essential practice is version control. And we're going to have uh, whole episodes on version control as part of this podcast. 
But um, version control is, uh, I think, an essential part of uh, software development these days. Yeah, for sure. I think that's pretty much it for image-based development. So I think we'll wrap it up here. Uh, Thank you, Craig, for uh, being with me today and look forward to talking to you next time. Sure, it was fun. Okay, talk to you next time. Okay, see ya. Bye. You can contact us at smalltalkreflections at thiscontext.com. You can visit our blog at smalltalkreflections.blogspot.ca and leave a comment there. And you can post a review in iTunes. Craig Ladder performed the music and edited the podcast. 